Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay. And today we're going to be doing another chatty little episode about things happening in the culture. So first, I feel like we have to address the, I was going to say the elephant, and I was trying to think of something cheeky to replace the word elephant with, but I can't think of anything. So let's just get into it. I want to talk about Barbie. So recently, the second teaser trailer for Barbie dropped along with a bunch of cheeky promotional posters. (laughs) So of course, naturally, the internet completely broke down because of it. I was seeing Barbie everywhere. I was seeing fan theories. I was seeing premeditated criticisms. I was seeing the whole shebang. And I was living for it. Like I am really stoked for this Barbie movie. I didn't actually go too far deep into the conspiracy theory hole because, I don't know, I like to be surprised um, when I watch a movie. I actually do not like watching movie trailers, usually. I only watched this movie trailer because everyone was talking about it. But the reason I don't like to watch movie trailers is because I think if I go into a movie having no expectations of what it's going to be like, there's a higher possibility that I will just enjoy it more. Like all the best movies I've seen, I did not know what they were going to be about at all. Like Everything Everywhere All at Once, Parasite, Midsummer, The Lighthouse... Those weren't like my favorite movies, but I think if I had watched the trailers, I wouldn't have enjoyed them as much. Also, I feel like I've just been burned too many times with movie trailers that spoiled the whole damn movie. I don't know why movie trailer editors even do this. Like, why would I ever want to see a movie if I already know what the twist is going to be, which is what usually happens in all of these like bad trailers. Specifically, like, trailers of the 2000s and early 2010s. I think recently with A24 productions in particular, trailers tend to be a little bit more obscure. Like, you can't really tell what's happening. And that's what it should be. You should just get the vibes. The only thing I should walk away from a trailer knowing is what genre the movie's going to be. And who the actors are, obviously. But I was plugged into one part of the Barbie conversation, which is that of the casting of Ryan Gosling. And disclaimer, I love Ryan Gosling. I have always kind of liked his work. I was never a diehard fan, but with all the criticism towards him being cast, I've literally just morphed into a diehard fan. Suddenly, like, I love Ryan Gosling and I love all of his work, and I think he's like the best comedy actor ever. Not really, but also really, because I rewatched Nice Guys recently. This wasn't a Barbie motivated rewatch, I just happened to watch it again. And he's just so funny, like genuinely funny. And the thing is, I'm in this acting program, right? And I had to do a comedy scene. And it is actually so hard to do comedy. And I think I'm not like a terribly unfunny person. Like I I think I have my moments. And I definitely understand what comedy is. But trying to create a character and not have it be gimmicky and not have it represent an SNL skit is really hard. Because... What I realized, the best kind of comedy acting is when you feel like that character is just a funny guy or a funny girl. Like they're a real human and they're just funny. That's what Ryan Gosling was able to do in Nice Guys. And I think it's what he's able to do in Barbie just from the first look at the trailer. The way he delivers lines, it's not forced. It's not trying to get a laugh out of people. It's real. It's natural. It's Ken. He's Ken. But despite the fact that literally... I laughed on all of his lines, and I'm sure everyone else did too. There were critics who believed he was too old to play this role. And 
I hesitate to call it ageist because the reality is that Ken and Barbie are supposed to be like teenagers. I think they're canonically forever 19. So I can understand why people would be hesitant about (laughs) watching a 42-year-old play a 19-year-old. But I also think it's worth noting that Greta Gerwig offered him the role. Like, I think he was her first choice. For this Deadline article that I read, this was published like last year, when they were first dropping hints that Barbie was going to come out. And in this article, Ryan Gosling said that he wasn't sure that he was going to accept the role, but it was the best script that he's ever read. And then everything was cemented for him when he went out into his backyard to quote unquote think about it. And he found a Ken doll, quote, face down in the mud next to a squished lemon. He took a photo, sent it to Greta Gerwig and said, I shall be your Ken for his story must be told. And I'm obsessed. (laughs) I think he's genuinely like such a cool, funny guy, which, you know, I, I usually don't like to say that about male actors anymore, given the fact that a lot of male actors end up just being the worst people ever. Um, I don't know if anyone's heard about the whole Nicholas Braun stuff going on, but uh, that's just a sidebar. Like, he's this actor who is on a bunch of Disney Channel productions when he was younger, but he's been a main character on Succession for a while, and I haven't seen Succession, so I don't actually know the name of his character. And I'm sorry, I'm trying. I know Succession is, like, such a big part of the cultural zeitgeist. I know. It's just four seasons out now. It's going to take me a while to motivate myself to actually catch up. I feel like I either watch a series when it's fully done so I can like take my time with it and not feel like I have to get in while everyone's still watching it or I watch it from the beginning with everyone else. When a series is in the midst of airing, I just, I can't be pulled to it. Anyways, a bunch of girls on TikTok released videos alleging that he tried to hook up with them or did hook up with them when they were 16 and he was like 25 so uh disgusting predatory and I feel like these types of stories keep coming out about different people and it's just made me not want to stand any particular actor too seriously I say that not to allege that Ryan Gosling has done anything because as far as I know he's done nothing but that's just my philosophy on the on the male actor I say all this as like an asterisk to my statement that Ryan Gosling is the perfect Ken. I stand by that. And one of my favorite things that's happened in this discourse is this video of him dancing as a child has recirculated on the internet. So if you haven't seen the video, I'll link it down in the show notes. But it's basically a video of child Ryan Gosling. I think he looks about eight years old in this. Maybe he's a little older. I have maybe he's a little younger. Honestly, I don't know. I can't tell with children anymore. But He's dancing to Kathy Dennis's Touch Me for a talent competition with his troupe Elite Dance Studios. And it's just so freaking cute. Someone reposted it on TikTok, of course, and it went viral. And one of my favorite comments was, born with Kennergy. <laughs> I also have this feeling that Greta Gerwig reached out to Ryan Gosling, not because she's like this ultra Ryan Gosling fan who just wants him in her movie, but because there is a reason for why Ken is played by an older actor. I don't know. I trust the vision. I haven't looked, again, as I said, I haven't looked into the conspiracy theories about what the Barbie movie might be about. So I really have no idea. But I am excited for it. And I'm excited to discover, you know, if Ken is going to have a midlife crisis in this movie. 
Another thing that I really loved about this trailer was just how bright it was, bright and colorful, because so many movies these days are so dark. And I actually, I reposted this funny little meme on my personal Twitter account, and it's someone who posted an Instagram story with the text, men in LA, dot, 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 dot. Get off your phones and stop becoming influencers. We need gaffers. <laughs> These shows dark as hell. I can't see shit. <laughs> and then a bunch of sobbing emojis. I totally relate to that because there have been so many movies that I've seen where I'm like, why can't I see anything? And especially as someone who really loves to watch older movies, I love Technicolor and I love especially the aesthetic of 70s movies where everything was just so bright. Like if you look at Stanley Kubrick's work, everything is so well lit. You can literally see every single detail. And now with a lot of movies these days and a lot of TV shows, it's just so dark and obscure and I'm like squinting at my TV because I have no idea what's going on. Coincidentally enough though, I came across this article written by A.B. Allen for Polygon, which came out literally a week ago. <laughs> and it's called Why Are Movies So Dark These Days? A Filmmaker Walks Us Through the Reasons Behind the Dark Cinematography That's Causing So Many Complaints. So in this article, Allen goes through the reasons why movies tend to be darker lit these days. And I thought it was really interesting. They talk a lot about trends in lighting throughout the years, which I, you know, I never really thought about that. But let's get into it. So when film was around, before everything went digital, movies had to be better lit because film would be developed post-production. So you wouldn't know what it was looking like as you were filming. And to make sure that the film was usable, you had to light the sets a certain way. Because if you didn't light it a certain way and everything actually ended up super dark, then you wouldn't have been able to use that film. It would have all gone to waste and you would have already wrapped up production, so you would just not have that scene anymore. When it comes to digital trends, in the 90s, a lot of movies were actually very well lit despite being shot on digital. And that's because the trend at the time was to have these hyper-lit productions. One example that Alan cites is Wes Craven's 1996 horror film, Scream. This movie has a lot of melodramatic lighting. It uses unmotivated lights. So definitionally, motivated lights are those that have a rational, tactile logic within the world of a particular scene. For instance, sunlight pouring through a window, the warm glow of a desk lamp. These are not artificially brought in to make everything lighter. These are literally the props that exist in the context of the scene. Unmotivated lights are the exact opposite. This is purposeful, artificial lighting usually, designed to create a particular stylistic impression. So in Scream, there's a lot of unmotivated lights. A particular scene is an early scene that depicts the protagonist, Sidney Prescott, embracing her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, in the wake of a terrifying home invasion. And after Sydney throws her arms around Billy, there is a tight close-up on Billy's face, which is illuminated by this very harsh, icy, cool light. Where is this light coming from? It's coming from an artificial source because the scene takes place in a dark bedroom where there is actually no light that's supposed to be on. But Craven chose to illuminate Billy's face because that illuminated also Billy's sinister intentions. This was a stylistic choice. It's employed for one moment to cast doubt on Billy's trustworthiness in the audience's mind. It's extremely stagey. I'm not going to lie. It's not realistic, 
But the entire movie and the entire series itself relies on this very heightened melodramatic style, so it works. But like all trends, they are temporary. So in the 2000s, the hyper-lit style fell out of fashion and instead filmmakers start embracing more directional shadowy lighting styles to evoke a grittier more grounded aesthetic and then in the 2010s um, there was another huge shift in style towards hyper naturalism which i would argue is what we're still experiencing today this is when the lights are not only motivated they're realistic so for instance harry potter and the deathly hollows part one this was literally such a dark film, and I watched it in theaters too, and I still thought it was dark. There are instances when people use motivated lighting and it still looks well lit because, for instance, if it's at nighttime and there's a moon, they'll use the moon, the presence of a moon, to justify adding more lights to uh, create this moonlight, even though it's artificial. But in the hyper-naturalist trend, there is no added light. You are literally just dealing with the moon. If you're shooting at nighttime, that's all you're working with. Another example is um, The Revenant. The cinematographer working on that project was Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki. And Lubezki used almost no lighting equipment. He bet the entire film on the sun's rays, firelight, and low light capabilities of a small array of Ari Alexa cameras. So, needless to say, it was very realistic, but also very dark. Alan's main argument at the end of this article is that people should understand what filmmakers are trying to do stylistically and honor that. So, instead of watching a movie on a little iPhone via YouTube, you should try to go to the theater and watch them in a dark space, or even just watch it in a dark space at home and reconfigure your TV settings to make sure you're just getting the best experience you can possibly get. I don't totally agree with what they're trying to say. I think that, sure, a lot of movies, you're going to get a better experience watching in a movie theater. I love the movie theater personally. I advocate for the movie theater, and I really enjoy hanging out there. I also have this issue, which I know plagues a lot of people, so I feel comfortable and safe sharing this. But sometimes I just don't have the attention span to watch a movie. And especially when I'm at home, I'll find myself, you know, going through my phone, especially if I'm watching a movie by myself. If I'm watching it with someone else, I'll try to, you know, engage myself more in what we're doing together. But if I'm just watching a movie by myself and I'm not in the right headspace to watch it, but I still want to for some reason, I'll like, kind of pull out my phone and play around with my phone while half paying attention to the movie. It's not great. And usually miss large chunks of what's actually happening. I don't recommend it. So that's why I also love the movie theater because I can't use my phone because phones are not allowed and I'm not going to be that one asshole who creates this like shining beacon of light um, coming from my seat because I can't obey the theater rules. I'm going to put my phone away and I'm going to watch the movie. And let me tell you, I've never been bored watching a movie in a movie theater. I have always managed to pay full attention. And I think it's just, I need some gentle prodding. I need the constraints to be set around me because I don't have the self-control to do it myself. And therefore, movie theaters are the perfect place for me to watch movies. I don't want to make that sound like an ad. I just want to say I do really enjoy them. And so I do advocate watching a movie in a movie theater if you have the capability to do so. With that said, a lot of people don't watch movies in movie theaters. And also a lot of movies are not even playing in movie theaters anymore. 
if you want to watch, you know, a movie that's like five years old or something, you're not going to get that in a movie theater. You're probably going to have to watch it on a streaming service. And also a lot of people don't really have the time or the care to fix up their uh, TV to make sure that they can watch this TV show in the best lighting possible. And also a lot of people watch things during the daytime because schedules are hectic and sometimes you don't have a night to be able to watch something. So there's a lot of factors that go into how people engage with movies and TV shows today. And I honestly think that it is the job of the filmmaker to consider that. I'm not saying that they should completely change their directorial vision. I just think that if you know your project is going straight to a streaming service and it's not getting a movie premiere, Maybe you should prioritize creating something that the audience can see versus the aesthetic. And also, I think the oversaturation of this type of filmmaking has made it less spectacular, less impactful. Sure, there are some movies where I think a dark grittiness, an underlit aesthetic could work, like Batman. I didn't actually watch Batman, but I could see it working because I know what Batman's about and it's like, you know, he's what, The Dark Knight or whatever. So it makes sense. But if you're just trying to create a TV show or movie that falls into this trend but doesn't necessarily need to, then uh, I don't know. Like, it's boring. It's tired. It's unmotivated. And at this point, getting something super well lit is such a rarity that it makes it better and more memorable and more impactful to go that direction. Other things that have been happening in the news. So from March 28th to April 3rd was Divorce Week on The Cut. And this was just a week where The Cut was publishing a lot of content related to divorce. And obviously I had to read that because I love reading about this type of stuff. And one of the most memorable articles in this collection was this article called... All My Divorced Friends Are Sharing Custody of Their Pets, written by Inez Bellina. So this is something interesting because I feel like I don't know too many divorced couples because I'm only 26 and I live in New York City where uh, getting married at 26 is like child bride territory. So I don't know many divorced couples, but I do know of couples who have been together and who have broken up and still have shared custody of the pet that they bought together. And I feel like this is something that's happened mostly recently. Like I think 20 years ago, people were not sharing custody of their dogs and cats. And so it's interesting. Actually, in 2017, Alaska became the first state to require judges to consider the best interest of any animals in divorce proceedings and to explicitly allow joint ownership. New York, New Hampshire, California, Maine, and Illinois have followed suit. So it's definitely a growing interest. And like, I'm a pet person. I have cats that I share with my boyfriend. And I sympathize for anyone who still loves their cat or dog or other pet, but doesn't want to be in a relationship anymore because the relationship you forge with your animal is special and different. But at the same time, it's not always healthy to continue to connect with your ex-spouse if you don't need to which is usually what happens with a lot of these like pet arrangements. I feel like what's also becoming common these days is people not having kids and instead like having pets as kids and in turn 
treating the pets as if they are humans and of human mind. So what I mean by that is even though it hurts to say it, if you rehome your pet, it will learn to live without you. Versus if you, I don't know, rehome your child, they will probably grow up with trauma and this void that will be never filled because their parent abandoned them as a kid. You know, the the consequences are much more dire when it comes to a human. And humans are also just, you know, like we can move around more easily. A lot of divorced kids, like being shuffled from parent to parent is not the most ideal, but it's not going to cause you significant distress most of the time. I'm a child of divorced parents and even though my parents didn't get divorced until I was 18, and so I was already out of the house at that point. When I came back over the summer, I would go back and forth, and it was fine. And I have a younger brother who is 10 years old when they were divorced. That's not right, mathematically, because we only have seven years apart. Okay, I was 17 <laughs> when they got divorced, um, and my brother was 10. So he grew up with more of a childhood of being shoveled back and forth, and he's fine. So it happens. But... Animals, on the other hand, especially cats, you're not supposed to move them back and forth too often. I think dogs are a little bit more okay, but cats I know for sure because even when I go on vacation, when my boyfriend and I both go on vacation and we need to get a cat sitter, you're supposed to get a cat sitter to come to the house to take care of the cats. It's kind of like a no-no to bring your cat to another person's house because they get really stressed out by that. But even dogs can suffer. Um, There's like this one story, which I thought was pretty funny, but also kind of sad, that was featured in this article. So this man, Pete Siegel, he's a 45-year-old dad from Chicago, and he has shared custody of his beagle named Leonard. And he said, we knew our daughter was very attached to the dog. Instead of one of us taking him, we decided he would go wherever she went. And the situation has been drama-free, at least for the humans. But Leonard is still adjusting to the transition with the help of the antidepressant trazodone. Pete continues and says, My ex and I happen to live across the street from each other, and it's really confused Leonard. When I take him out for a walk, he'll look across the street like, Am I supposed to be over there? Yeah, I think honestly, in a weird way, probably staying in the same neighborhood as your ex and sharing custody of dog is more confusing for the dog than if you lived like, an hour away from each other and just drops the dog off like every six months or so, which I know some people who are doing that. And I don't know any friend of mine who's doing that who has a dog on an antidepressant, but I think that's like a pretty bad sign if you have to put your pet on medication to deal with the arrangement. Another funny story in this article was um, the story that a family attorney, Colleen M. Breams, shared. One of her former clients had an arrangement, a shared custody arrangement with this dog, and it was going smoothly until one day, she said, the client got the dog from his ex at a transfer. Shortly thereafter, the dog passed a used condom through his system. The dog was fine. The client was not, which is so gross. Oh my God, dogs just really eat everything. But yeah, it just like, it keeps ex-spouses needlessly intertwined with each other's lives. You kind of don't want to know if your ex is starting to date other people. And unfortunately, in this case, that person found out in a pretty brutal way. 
Hey guys, summer is just around the corner and if shaving is a self-care practice you like to do, then I have to recommend Athena Club's razor. It's the prettiest razor you will find on the market. I have the limited edition mint color if you want to match, but they also have a bunch of colors on their website including black and white if you want something more minimal. But more importantly, the razor is super gentle on my skin and I haven't had to deal with bumps or redness like with other razors I've used in the past. How is this possible, you may be asking. Athena Club's razors are designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves. Plus, the razor blade is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which is a holy grail for skincare. Athena Club also offers a subscription service, so you just choose how often you want your replacement blades shipped to you for free, and you'll never be stuck with an overused blade longer than it should be used for. Show your skin you care with the Athena Club razor kit. Head to athenaclub.com and use code MENA for 25% off your first order. Again, that's Athena club.com and use code mina for 25% off the Vienna club has also launched in target stores nationwide so make sure to check out the shaving aisle to buy their products in store in real life another article that was part of the series was everyone announces their divorce like a celebrity now by ali jones and <laughs> i thought this was also funny because i've seen it happen again not within my circle because i don't know that many divorced people but just in general like so many influencers post on social media about everything about their lives as if they were in this really famous marriage when I feel like a lot of the times when you see an influencer post about getting divorced you're like wait I didn't even know she was married or maybe that's just my impression because I don't I don't try to follow influencers in that kind of way I don't feel like I need to know the intimate details of people's lives who are not my own because I'm already stressed out with what I'm going through anyways it's not news that celebrities usually have to come up with some kind of statement if they are getting divorced. Again, I kind of see it the same way as influencers, where I'm like, why do we need to know the intimate affairs of other people's lives? And especially like the way that a lot of celebrities will write these posts, it's kind of coming from a place where they don't want to share. It's usually the same type of statements where they're like, we're getting divorced. We've enjoyed so many wonderful years together. Please respect our privacy. It's not like trying to be inspirational. It's not trying to gain sympathy. It's more of like a plea for privacy and just letting you know what's happening because if people see you dating, if some paparazzi captures you dating someone else, people are going to be like, well, what about her husband? What about her wife? You know, so I can see like damage control wise why celebrities would want to share this information themselves but normal people it's kind of like why do you want to volunteer this information i get it if you were famous as a couple like if you're one of those couple accounts where people follow you for <laughs> for the things you do together then i think it's like kind of glaringly obvious something is wrong if one day your husband stops appearing in your vlogs but Usually, like a lot of these influencers who share these stories, they're not couples influencers. They are just influencers who are married or who had boyfriends and then just decided that they need to share that they're going through a breakup. One example in this article is that of Alessia Scousilo. I don't think I pronounced that correctly, but she's a fitness influencer who has about 25,000 followers on Instagram. And uh, she shared the news of her breakup with a stitched together video of her crying, leaving her partner, and ultimately getting stronger with the caption, I chose me, white heart emoji. And then similarly, Lauren Chan, who is a model and influencer with around 83,000 followers on Instagram, 
She announced her divorce on Valentine's Day, and she posted this divorce with a carousel of professionally shot photos of her wearing white lacy lingerie while looking at herself in a mirror. And the caption was, this Valentine's Day has given me an impetus to think deeply about self-love. And I think that this is the right moment to share that I'm going through a divorce. It's a very odd feeling to feel like I need to share such a personal update with over 80,000 of you. But I can tell that I've been withdrawn from people, both in real life and on social media, because of it. And I want to get reconnected. A lot of these types of posts, they frame divorce in this kind of spiritual enlightenment way. Which, I don't know how I feel about that, because I think breakups in general... They can be amicable, sure, but they can also be really messy. And I think this desire to frame your divorce announcement in this, I'm getting better, I'm choosing me, I'm a free person, all of that framing, it comes off a little forced and often fake, especially if the divorce was relatively recent. I also think our society has this problem of wanting to overshare every single thing that's happening in our lives to social media and... Part of it is because a lot of these platforms encourage you to do that. I think on Facebook, I I don't use Facebook anymore, but when you would post a status, like the question that they have is, what are you feeling or what do you want to share or something like that? So people have kind of been programmed by these social media sites to want to share something about themselves. And then on top of that, everyone around you is using social media in that way where you feel like you need to be contributing something personal to fit in with all your other friends who are posting really personal stuff. And then also, if you were an influencer, there's always this idea of being authentic that comes up when people are trying to build their platforms. There's so many analyses out there about why certain influencers make it big because they are just so authentic and real and relatable. And a lot of people feel like the way to get this authenticity checkmark is by sharing a lot of intimate things you're dealing with in your life to the world. And I think sometimes this oversharing climate can be a good thing because especially when it comes to topics of mental health, it's really valuable that people are willing to be so vulnerable and shed light on what conditions are affecting a lot of people and kind of creating communities and discussions around hard to talk about subjects. Also, when it comes to the whole Me Too movement, survivors sharing their stories, that was really important for, one, holding abusers accountable, and also to creating a space where people feel free to talk about, once again, taboo subjects, things that have affected their lives, things that other people deal with, and creating an environment where it's okay to share and to talk about it. The downside of all this to me is the fact that you can commodify your own thoughts, your own experiences, your authenticity, quote unquote, which, you know, I kind of feel like it's virtually impossible to be fully authentic on social media because the way that we present ourselves on social media is through a curatorial lens. Like you are so aware of yourself on social media. It's impossible to not be aware of yourself on social media. And because of that, I think. It's hard to be fully authentic because you're kind of watching what you choose to post, what you don't choose to post. And a lot of the times these influencers are also thinking about the kind of content that's going to get them a lot of engagement, a lot of likes. And unfortunately, when you're thinking about what you're going to share through that kind of lens, 
it's not authentic. The compulsion to share about your divorce is no longer like an impulse to want to actually build community. It's more of like an impulse to make money because you know that a lot of people are going to respond to it. I think a lot of this self-posting can also lead to an inflated sense of self. And I hesitate to use the word narcissist because I know that's such a buzzword that's overused these days. And I don't believe in armchair diagnoses of conditions. But, you know, I, I do think it kind of leads to this inflated ego because there's this idea that everything you're doing is worthy of an audience. Everything that you are doing, people want to know about, which is not always true. I mean, Unfortunately, it is true for a lot of big influencers and major celebrities, but it's not good. And I think with the whole idea of influencer culture, it promotes the concept that anyone could be a celebrity. Anyone could be an influencer if you just try really hard, if you just post every day, if you somehow learn what the algorithm wants, like you too can have a following and you too can have fans that are so interested in your every move. And the result, I think, is just widespread main character syndrome. And again, like, I don't want to stand up for celebrities and say they deserve to have this following. They deserve to have people looking at their every move because their lives are worth more than ours. I think that whole system is worth critiquing. I just think that this idea of anyone can become a celebrity these days has led to this widespread oversharing, which has frankly just become so annoying. <laughs> This is kind of related, but there was a piece that also went um, semi-viral, at least on my Twitter feed, called Is Therapy Speak Making Us Selfish? And this was published on Bustle by Rebecca Fishbian. In the article, she writes, In recent years, therapy concepts like self-care and boundary setting have shown up everywhere online, with Instagram accounts and other social media communities sharing mantras and vice advocating for self-actualization. As a result, a lot of people have started to use therapy speak in their everyday lives, and therapy speak is defined as prescriptive language describing certain psychological concepts and behaviors. So yeah, let me try to give you an example. So in this article, Rebecca shared a couple different stories. One story, which I thought was just something, <laughs> was shared by this woman, Kate Hakala, who was 34 and from New York. And she was retelling the story about how she once invited four of her friends to an intimate dinner at a pizza restaurant to celebrate her birthday. One of these friends showed up 25 minutes late. Hakala told Bustle, It was a little rude, a little annoying, but not the end of the world. I felt like I was still super polite to her and warm. But after dinner and a low-key bar visit, the night wrapped early, Hakala went home. Close to midnight, the friend who was late called her on the phone. Hakala says, She says, I need to address this. You made me feel unsafe and unloved tonight. I went, excuse me? And she's like, yeah, your demeanor was a little off. And this has been building for a while and you made me feel really left out. Takala had no idea. What, what was the reason for this woman reaching out to her, especially on her birthday? She recalls, I'm racking my brain to think. What did I do other than to invite you to a really intimate dinner with my closest friends and hug you and have drinks with you? Of course, I got off the phone and immediately cried and felt like shit. So that's kind of an example of therapy speak, what that late friend was saying. You know, using words like unsafe and unloved and kind of speaking to you as if they're the HR department and you are an employee that was called in for bad behavior. 
Rebecca hypothesizes that part of the reason is because conflict is difficult. And unfortunately, therapy speak kind of gives guidelines on how to assert your needs in a way that feels like you can't argue with it. This clinical psychologist and professor of psychology, Darby Saxby, she says that some of the therapy speak can add more weight to what's ultimately a one-sided observation. She told Rebecca, it feels more official, more legitimized, more of a final sounding judgment when you give somebody a diagnostic label or you label a friendship in a particular way. But the downside of using this kind of language is that people in relationships are fluid and having fixed ways to describe particular people or relationships removes that kind of flexibility. This can also be painful to the person who's using therapy speak because in the end, rather than trying to come up with a solution, rather than using conflict resolution skills, you're just cutting yourself off from this person. And that can actually make you more isolated and lonelier because who's really going to live up to this ideal of a perfect person to have a friendship or relationship with? Nobody. Humans are messy. Humans have problems. We all have issues. We all have our own traumas. We all have things that we could do better in terms of communicating, in terms of showing up for people. So when you're holding someone to this ridiculously high standard, of course they're never going to meet it. And then you're just going to cut them off instead of trying to come up with a way to make this friendship more fulfilling for both people. And then you're going to be alone. And also on top of that, despite the word therapy speak, like a lot of therapists do not speak like this. This one Twitter user, Dylan, their handle is spiritnght2. They tweeted this in response to the article. For what it's worth, therapists don't talk like this or teach you to talk like this. All this holding space crap sprang up from Instagram self-help grifters, which is why it's so popular with other narcissists. As someone who's been in and out of therapy a lot, and right now I'm out of therapy, though I should be in it, and I have found that every therapist I've gone to has not validated me to a point where I have done nothing wrong. Like there's always some aspect of trying to create a resolution for both people involved in a situation. My therapists have never told me to cut off a friendship. And usually if I'm going through like the events of what happened, they'll try to get me to think from the other person's perspective as well. I think the problem is that there are these Instagram therapy accounts. And to be clear, a lot of these therapy accounts are owned by licensed therapists. But the problem is they post these like infographics with these very vague quotes or very vague bits of life advice that are not tailored to any specific person. And so someone can read that and apply it to their life, even if it doesn't apply. (laughs) An example of something super vague is there's like an infographic that went around that was like, life isn't a pass or fail exam. It's a big, messy experiment. Okay, that sounds great. But if someone is literally like has no control of their life whatsoever, they can use that to justify themselves never getting their shit together because they're like, oh, life is just a big messy experiment. Versus if they actually went to a therapist and had a one-on-one session, I guarantee that therapist would not just be like, yeah, it's totally fine. You have nothing in your life together. Just keep doing you. 
And I don't think Instagram therapy is like 100% bad. Like it has gotten me through some tough times in my life. I'm not going to lie. Like in 2019, especially, I was super into reading Instagram therapy accounts. Like let's not lie. Therapy is expensive, especially in America especially because a lot of therapists aren't covered by insurance and especially because a lot of people don't even have insurance. So private therapy sessions can cost like between $30 at like the lowest end of the spectrum, at least in New York City, and like $300. So it's a lot of money to forfeit, especially for just one session. You're usually not going to go to one session. You have to go to multiple sessions because the first couple sessions are just you and the therapist like unpacking what's going on in your life like the therapist just wants to get to know who you are and what you're dealing with and again I'm someone who's been in and out of therapy so I also like have no issue over sharing about my life to therapists but there are some people who are not comfortable doing that so it takes like 10 sessions just to grow comfortable talking to this person and then what is 10 sessions that's like over a thousand dollars so in a way Instagram therapy does help break down these entry barriers that traditional therapy offers and then also I think sometimes they can raise awareness about issues that you didn't even know existed so I'm going to overshare here and say that I have anxiety induced IBS which is like IBS symptoms that are caused by my anxiety so I didn't know this I just thought I had IBS for a long time and I went to all these doctors and gastroenterologists all my life you know, trying to figure out what I was eating that was causing these reactions. And I tried, I tried everything and nothing worked. And then one day I just came across an infographic that talked about anxiety induced IBS. And I was like, you know what? I do have anxiety. So this actually makes sense. And then I got on Lexapro. I'm no longer on Lexapro. That's a different story. But I got on Lexapro and suddenly all my IBS symptoms were gone. I just like, I stopped fully having those symptoms. And I was like, wow. Meanwhile, when I went to the doctor, they were trying to get me to do all these tests. None of them were showing anything. I wasn't allergic to anything. I didn't have celiac disease. And sure, like, you know, I don't blame these doctors necessarily because those are conditions that people have that would cause them to have IBS symptoms. But that wasn't the case for me. And just the idea of anxiety causing this was not something that registered to me and was not something doctors told me about either. So I think Instagram infographics can be helpful sometimes. But in my personal case, like I was able to test out whether or not I actually had that because, you know, I went on the meds and it was gone. So that's how I came to terms with the fact that I had anxiety-induced IVF versus I think Sometimes like you can't really check whether or not certain advice applies to your life, especially when it doesn't have anything to do with diagnoses. Like for instance, if you come across a graphic that says something like anyone who challenges you is trying to inauthenticate you, you know, something like that. And it's like, that's not necessarily true. It depends on the person. And unless you're going to talk to that person about your problems and they can talk about their own problems then you're never going to know what the intentions they have are, you know? Growing up, cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid, but as I got older, I've become more conscious of the quality of food I'm eating. Magic Spoon has the nostalgic flavors you love, but is more fueling. 
So I ordered the variety pack, which comes with four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. Just some nutrition facts. The pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and 45 net grams of carbs, and is only 140 calories per serving. It's high protein, has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. My favorite was the fruity one because my palate leans towards the fruitier side, um, but the cereal overall has a nice sweetness to it with a good aftertaste, and I love the crunchy texture. I was actually surprised how much I love the cereal. I'm fully a Magic Spoon convert, I must say. So go to magicspoon.com slash Mina to grab a variety pack and try today, and be sure to use our promo code M-I-N-A Mina at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash Mina, and use the code Mina to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, hard pivot, but the last thing I want to talk about is flavored water TikTok. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, flavored water has gotten kind of viral all over TikTok. There are a group of mostly women who have been creating recipes on how to create flavored waters. So I'm just going to play a clip. This TikTok was posted by user taking my life back at 42. Let's get to the flavored water of the day. This flavored water is going to be one of the snow cone waters that we're doing, all right? Jolly Rancher watermelon and Nerds strawberry, half of each, okay? And then the syrup is coconut. Two pumps of that coconut skinny syrup. My mouth is watering because this smells so good. Like, it smells like when you get a tiger's blood snow cone. We're going to mix it up and then we're going to give it a taste. It's like a drug. It is one of the most amazing flavored waters to date. The trend itself is pretty harmless, honestly. Like, people kind of get annoyed about the semantics of it because they're like, you're making soda or you're making juice. This is not water because water is just water. One commenter said, girly is drinking a lush bath bomb. (laughs) Regardless, it's like mostly harmless. It's just kind of like weird. And there are some people who have definitely used flavored water as like a dieting tactic as a way to avoid eating food. I saw this one commenter on Twitter who called this video eating disorder behavior. So I get it, and I think that's dangerous. But I also think like there's just people who don't like the taste of normal water. Like a couple of years ago, there was like this football player for the New York Giants. I don't watch football like that, but his name is Odell Beckham Jr. And he told reporters that he hates water so much He'll like fight through painful cramps rather than hydrate. So I'm gonna play that interview clip. I've always cramped. It's just I'm. I feel like I'm working harder than I ever have. So I really don't like water. Um, I'm trying. I really just don't like it. You know, when you get that stomach feeling, it's all slushy. Like I'm. I'm trying to stay hydrated, but um, you know, sometimes I just. I just gotta get an IV. It's just necessary. You know, you're cramping. You're cramping in both calves. It's hard to run and make cuts and, and if you're cramping and dehydrated you're susceptible to some something else so uh, i'm trying to stay on top of it um the best that i can there was actually an article in mel magazine that was inspired by um beckham jr's water hatred and in it <laughs> they interview some other uh water haters and honestly reading it it like made me so uncomfortable it made me so thirsty like i don't know i'm just gonna read a couple testimonials so There's this one woman, Lori Cheek, and she told the magazine she's landed in the ER three times due to severe heart dehydration because she simply refuses to drink water. 
She's been carted off in an ambulance after fainting at the gym, after suffering a panic attack, and after experiencing extreme exhaustion from a minor cold. But she says she still won't fall for big water scare tactics. Not big water. (laughs) She said, even if there are absolutely no other options besides water, I usually just opt to not drink anything. Oh my god, like I actually just think about that one scene in um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, that old western movie with Clint Eastwood where he's like visibly dehydrating <laughs> in the desert and it, that's like what I imagine is like what these people are dealing with and I can't fathom not drinking water because to me, I've said in, the, in a previous podcast that I think water tastes good. But I think water tastes really good when you're like really thirsty. That's the best water is ever going to taste. So I actually, I can't understand. I can't understand it. There was another testimonial from Chris Riley, who was owner of the food blog, The Daring Kitchen. He said, I'd rather quench my thirst with castor oil than have to take a sip of water. I remember really not liking it from about six or seven and tended to drink a lot of milk as a kid. I'm now in my 30s and it makes me feel sick to the stomach when I see people constantly quote-unquote hydrating with big huge bottles of mountain fresh spring water. Shudder. (laughs) For me it's the taste or lack thereof that I find so unappealing, especially if it's straight out of the tap. It has a very metallic and almost moldy taste to it. Although it's not so bad with bottled water, it's enough to put me off. I've kept myself alive by adding Robinson's fruit shoot to nearly every drop of liquid I've consumed. Plus I drink quite a bit of milk every day. If I'm on a long car journey, I'll bring a large bottle of diet soda, so I'd say I keep hydrated regardless. Basically, I'd rather be a bit thirsty than drink water. When I tried to look into why people or why some people don't like the taste of water, I couldn't really find much. Also, I'm just not a woman in STEM, so like I wasn't willing to dive into some (laughs) scientific American articles. But I did find this one article published by grist.org, and in it, They say Americans eat about 100 pounds of sugar a year, and they connect that with why some people wouldn't like the taste of water. Which I guess makes sense to me, because most of these water talk flavored water videos, people are adding in very sweet substances to flavor their water. It's not like they're trying to make a savory briny water. That kind of would taste disgusting, in my opinion. So yeah, I think it it has to do with the water just not being sweet enough on its own. Something also interesting with uh, water talk is that almost every person who's creating these recipes uses a Stanley cup. So if you don't know what a Stanley cup is, don't be ashamed because I didn't know what a Stanley cup was until recently. I thought it was a hockey thing. It is a hockey thing, but it's not the thing that I'm talking about. So (laughs) a Stanley cup is a brand of water bottle And it grew in popularity in 2021, but it's been around since 1913. And the reason that it became so popular is because it was promoted by The Buy Guide, which is an Instagram account that's run by three friends, Ashley, Taylor, and Lindley. And they just like talk a lot about different purchases that make their lives better. And they were raving about the Stanley Cup. Ashley told BuzzFeed, it just shows up and does its job. (laughs) There isn't another 40 ounce cup with a handle that is dishwasher safe on the market. There are a couple similar cups that are a bit smaller, but they're just not nearly as pretty. So I think this happened before 2019 because in this BuzzFeed article I'm reading, Stanley temporarily discontinued the cup in 2019 and these three women were devastated and sought out 
the PR team to advocate for the cup being reintroduced into the influencer market. They said, we advise Stanley to work on their site, join an affiliate platform, and that we would introduce them to an army of influencers who love the cup and would sell it to their followings. We told them our dreams for the cup were much bigger than we were alone. We asked them to give us the chance to show them what women selling to women looks like, which kind of gives MLM rhetoric, but you know, whatever. The Stanley Cup skyrocketed in 2021 after it was relaunched, and during one restock, the cup sold out in under five hours. On eBay, the Tumblr, which normally retails for $40, was being resold for up to $180. So naturally, I had to figure out what's so good about this cup because this like little quote that Ashley said to me wasn't convincing. And looking at it, honestly, I don't really think it's that pretty of a cup. It's big, um, so you don't have to refill it as often, I guess. Some of the other features is that it has a rotating lid that allows you to sip from a straw or a wide mouth opening, plus it has full coverage top to prevent any spills. It has a double wall insulation, which keeps your drinks hot or cold for hours at a time, and it's completely BPA-free. And it comes in four different sizes, and it also has a wider top with a tapered bottom, so it easily fits in any cup holder. Okay, that makes sense. I can understand why you would want that. The larger size also has a sturdy handle, which is key for holding it comfortably, whether you're carrying it from desk to car or just around the office. Okay, I think I I just don't move around with a water bottle that often. (laughs) Like I work from home, so I'm not like carrying it on the go. So I don't know. This Stanley Cup is not personally for me, but a lot of the women who are part of Water Talk are obsessed with the Stanley Cup. So I guess if you want to be like them, something to think about. (laughs) On the other end of the water enthusiast spectrum are people who are actually into straight up water, like not flavored water. So there was like this article that was published last month called Inside the Very Real and Very Complicated World of Luxury Water Collectors. And this was a really fun article to read because I did not know about water sommeliers or just like the idea of luxury water. Sure, I've been to restaurants where they serve like bottled water in these like very fancy glasses, but I don't pay attention to the label. I don't know anything. Plus, I always order tap anyway, unless I'm like, when I was in Vietnam, for instance, like you probably shouldn't drink the water there, especially if you don't live in that area and you haven't developed the correct bacteria in your stomach to fight off um, bad bacteria native to the region. So yeah, in Vietnam, I ordered a lot of bottled water, but it was regular bottled water, like Dasani. Apparently, in Berlin, there are entire stores dedicated to different types of sparkling and still water, rows and rows of different brands, all offering specific levels of carbonation or mineral content. And water sommeliers, as I mentioned, these people are literally just like sommeliers for wine. They taste bottles of water as if they're fine wines. They'll pour them in little like wine glasses, swish them around, talk about a water's virginality or the water's level of protection from its surroundings and how that influences the taste. They help to design bespoke water menus for restaurants. They judge contests in which bottled waters compete on taste, texture, and mouthfeel. And they collect bottles of tasteless water from icebergs that cost as much as $300. So there was actually an episode on um, Zac Efron's travel series that he did a couple years ago. 
I only watched the first episode when he went to Iceland because uh, I do like Zac Efron. I have a nostalgic love for Zac Efron. Though, do I think he was the right person to host this travel wellness tasting show? Probably not, given that he's an actor without experience in this field. But I watched that first episode just to see what it was about. It wasn't for me. It was very bro-y. Little did I know that later on, he would actually go to a water tasting event, which so I actually looked it up in preparation for this podcast because I had to see it. And he invites his friend Anna Kendrick to do the water tasting with him. The water tasting experience was hosted at the uh, Petit Hermitage Hotel in LA. And it's actually a really funny, I guess, it's maybe it's not supposed to be funny because it's actually very serious for the water sommelier, but it's just so bizarre for someone who is so far removed from luxury water to watch. There's a TDS to every single water on this planet. TDS stands for total dissolved solids. So the higher the TDS level is, the more powerful we'll be tasting the water. And we will start now with Australia. This water is the olive oil of water. Uh, I've always wanted the olive oil of water. It's a thick water. He also mentioned that purified water is actually like bad for you. Water needs minerals. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, silica, all these amazing minerals what your body actually needs. When you would drink pure water, water will look for minerals and it will find minerals in your body. So that means it pulls out of the body and you're losing extra minerals by drinking water. I don't know anything about water, so I don't want to give specific health advice on water, but I thought that was just like an interesting thing because I've never heard that before. Anyways, back to this article. So Ashley Epperson, who is co-owner of the fine water supplier Salacious Drinks, um, she was interviewed and she offers 48 kinds of water on her platform. When she started her business in 2016, she ran it as a side hustle. And in its first year, Salacious Drinks made $9,000 in sales. Last year, that number reached $310,000 with an estimated 90% of sales credited to individual consumers who buy bottles of water that range in price from $2 to $140. So luxury water is on the rise, y'all. Also, the training that you have to undergo to be a water sommelier, it's like, it's like a wine sommelier course. Like You have to actually get formal training for it. And Epperson herself went to Fine Water Academy, which is a 16-week self-directed course priced at $2,200. Some of the things that they explore in the course is, does the water feel oily or clean on your tongue? What flavors do the blend of minerals in the water or totally dissolved solids, um, shortened to TDS, leave on your palate? You also learn how to pair waters with food. A very mineral-forward water, for example, can bring out the saltiness of a steak, but its strong flavor would overpower most fish dishes. A point that's like raised in this article, though, is the environmental impact of luxury water, especially, you know, with climate change and global capitalism. Water as a resource becomes more precious every year and is very precious in certain areas of the world that are denied clean water. There's a lot of water inequality. And therefore, the question is, is it ethical to be shipping water across the world to rich people who can afford it? And even though this like luxury iceberg water, that's $300, they're apparently sourced ethically. The company says it only takes small pieces of ice that have already broken off from icebergs. 
and that otherwise would melt into the sea. It also just like, I mean, you have to factor in the cost of transportation, like the environmental cost of transportation. And just, I don't know, it feels like weirdly dystopian that we're shipping out luxury water. Water, I feel like is one of those resources that should be free and should be equally accessible to everyone because it's such a important part of surviving and it's literally a natural resource. It's kind of like air. I remember there were articles a while ago about shipping air to um, some places in China that were heavily polluted and that just feels so dystopian. Like, why do some places get bad water and get bad air while other places get really good water and really good air? We all know the answer. It's capitalism. It's a global hierarchy. It's, you know, the global south getting less than the global north. But it's still so icky. And I feel like the luxury water industry really brings that inequality to the forefront. It's kind of very difficult to ignore in that situation. And also, even though plastic water bottles get all this bad (laughs) propaganda of being plastic, and yeah, they are bad for the environment, apparently glass bottles are not eco-conscious either. There is this one study published in 2020 by Detritus, the Journal for Waste Resources and Residues. And in the study, they found that glass bottles made with virgin materials and a hypothetical 100% recycled bottle actually was found to be considerably more environmentally impactful than plastic bottles. But then again, yes, at the same time, the carbon footprint created by these luxury water companies pales in comparison to mining and agriculture industries. And also like with all other kinds of drinks um, on the market, there's so many sodas, kombuchas, wines that get imported all around the world and um, that get put in all these kinds of like eco-unfriendly packaging and people are not as quick to judge those products. So yeah, I don't know. It's a lot to think about. As someone who has only just learned about luxury water like in the past like day or so, I haven't really come up with my own opinion yet on it, but I'm interested in hearing about what people have to say about big water. So actually, if you have a particular testimony you want to share with me, you can send an email to highbrowbymina at gmail.com with subject water. And I'll take a look and maybe I'll feature it in the next episode. Okay, thank you all so much for tuning in today. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and I'll check in next Wednesday. Bye.